0: is the end.
1: With what we just sang, we read in in Psalm 63 O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life my lips will praise you so i will bless you as long as i live and i will lift up my hands in your name my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness my mouth offers praise with joyful lips you know we know that the as believers the holy god dwells within us and lives with us continually but there's also a sense we as God's people must seek after God intentionally, purposefully. And so our souls do thirst for God, and we do thirst for the Word of God that is our bread, that is our sustenance, and He is the only one who can satisfy us. We continue this morning, we want to continue with a heart of just seeking God and intentionally and purposefully praising Him. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Our Father, we are so thankful that You have chosen to reveal Yourself to us through Your Word, to give us such clear understanding of Yourself, such a complete revelation. And Lord, we do hunger and we do thirst for You, to know about You, to experience You, and, Lord, we, we are lost without you. We cannot be satisfied without you. You and you alone are our satisfaction. And we come to you today, and we ask you, Lord, that by your grace, that you would open our eyes to see you in a greater way than we have before, that we might know in a, in a new way your your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your power, your righteousness, your holiness, your perfection, your forgiveness, your healing, your nurture. Thank you, God. Thank you that we can gather together here today. Thank you for this opportunity. We see how precious it is for God's people to gather together. And so now, Lord, we ask you your blessing upon this time and that it might bring glory and honor to you through Christ. Amen. Our study in the book of Revelation. And today's message is entitled Hell on Earth. And we come to chapter 9, we come to what many consider one of the most difficult passages in Revelation, even in the Bible, to interpret and to understand. And uh, there are definitely some uh, challenges to this passage. But I think that today that we will have a a better understanding of what it is that uh, uh, we need. No, there's no birds flying around. <laughs> Checking the, the lighting here. Um, so if you want to turn with me to Revelation chapter 9, that will be great. Think with me just for a moment. Because our world in which we live is the theater in which the the drama of redemption plays out, Satan has attacked humanity and he has come with all of his energy, all of his effort, and made this world actually the the primary battleground in his uh, conflict against God and believers. This world is the battlefield, a spiritual battlefield. Satan launched his first attack in the Garden of Eden where he was able to successfully get Adam and Eve to uh, disobey God. The disastrous consequences of that was that sin entered into the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men. Because all sinned, Romans chapter 5 tells us. And after the fall, God graciously promised that he would send a redeemer, a deliverer to bring man out of his sin. And you will remember in Genesis chapter 3, that first gospel that we are given, it says that the seed will come through the woman. Now, Satan countered, by sending demons to cohabitate with human women in an effort to produce a hybrid demon-human race that would be unredeemable. His goal is to have an unredeemable race by mixing these groups. That's what Genesis chapter 6 is really all about. In response, God destroyed that race and the whole sinful world in the universal flood. Satan came so close to capturing the world and, and wrestling it away from God. But God saved a remnant out of that flood, Noah and his family. Since that time, Satan has been attacking God's people with a vengeance as far as God will permit. He, he hates People And he especially hates people who follow God. And so Satan fought with all of his fury against Israel. He sought to, to lead them into idolatry and immorality and disobedience to, to the law in order to destroy them. That's what he always wants. He's a destroyer. And he fought with all of his fury against the Lord Jesus Christ from the beginning of his earthly ministry to the very end. In the beginning, we find him tempting him for 40 days. Throughout the ministry, we find him trying always to turn Jesus away from the work that the Father had sent him to accomplish. And in the end, we find him scheming to have him crucified. It appeared... That Satan had finally won the victory. But as we all know, Christ rose from the dead on the third day. And then he established his church. And since that time, now the church has become the special target of Satan's attack. So he's constantly attacking the church of God. He attacks it today by trying to bring unbelievers into it. He sows his tares among the wheat of God. He's constantly blinding the minds of the unbelieving so that they can't see the gospel and believe. And he's constantly bringing overwhelming believers with with temptation, persecution, and discouragement. But even so, God sovereignly oversees all the attacks that Satan brings upon this world. And he even uses all of those things in spite of what Satan does and for his purposes. You see, Satan is actually a servant of God. In the future, Satan will serve God's purposes by being permitted to launch another deadly assault upon humanity. And that attack will occur during the fifth trumpet which will sound during the time of God's great judgment in the tribulation. Now, let me put our graphic up for you just to remind you of where we are. As we've seen already, there are seven seals, and those seals are a false peace, a war, famine, death, vengeance, terror, and the seventh seal is seven trumpets and the seventh trumpet is, is the unleashing of seven bowls of God's wrath. We are now in the seventh trumpet, or the, excuse me, the seven trumpets or the seventh seal. And what we have seen is the first four trumpets have blown and when those trumpets have blown what we have seen are physical attacks upon the earth things falling objects falling from the sky upon the earth or the the heavens themselves being affected and you see this is the the the, the destruction is catastrophic that comes during these judgments but the three remaining trumpets are far worse that's the sobering message given by the eagle flying in mid-heaven at the end of chapter 8. He gives a threefold woe, woe, and that each woe is for the trumpet that is to follow. And it's it's a woe upon those who dwell upon the earth. You say, who's that? Well, that those are the unbelieving. Those are the uh, unregenerate people. And the woe is because they are of the horrors, the terrors that they are going to experience as these things are unleashed. But understand, even here, God's warning is a pause and it's an opportunity for people to repent. Although God is bringing judgment upon the world, he is doing this with the purpose of giving people the opportunity to repent. And so this angel gives this this final, really, opportunity before these judgments reach their apex. And people are hardened, ultimately. You see, in the fifth trumpet, we move from the physical realm to the spiritual realm. And there is going to be hell on earth as countless hordes of demonic beings belch forth from the darkness of the abyss and flood into the world, bringing untold horror and pain. Let's read about this event in Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And the key to the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God On their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots and many horses rushing to battle. And they have tails like scorpions and stings. And in their tails is the power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, his name is Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we know that you are the author of these words. And we want to receive them as from you. We pray, God, for your grace to be able to understand them correctly and to see what it is that you are about to accomplish in our world and in our lives. Father, we pray that you would help us to have the right perspective toward our world and toward what all the things that are happening even right now. And, Father, we give you the glory because we know that you are indeed the Lord of lords and the King of kings, that you are the superior, and all, you are due all glory. And, honor and, and we humble our hearts before you today. I pray that as people hear these words, that those who have never repented of their sin and turned to you in faith to Christ, that they would do that this very day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we just read, there will be hell on earth. And this hell is designed to show the unbelieving, the ultimate consequences of following Satan. People are going to have an opportunity to see what it's like to be in the very presence, an undiminished presence of demons. And you no doubt have heard of people who have claimed to gone to hell and come back and give a warning, right? At this point in the tribulation, hell comes to earth. And there are four stages of of its expression. First, there will be hell on earth when the bottomless pit is unlocked. And we'll read again verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. He says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. So when the the fifth angel sounded his trumpet, John saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. Now, unlike the other heavenly bodies that John has seen in the previous trumpet judgments, this is not an inanimate object, but it is a spiritual being. It's an angelic being. And the fact that this angelic being, it says, had fallen to the earth. Now, John didn't observe it falling, but he saw that it had fallen, suggests that this is a reference to Satan, the leader of all the fallen angels. Now, the word had fallen, that phrase had fallen, is in the perfect tense. It's something that happened in the past, but has continuing results or continuing consequences. Satan fell to the earth in the past, but it's still his, his presence here has continuing effect in the world in which we live. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12 describes his fall. He says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to, uh, to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly and the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan wants to be like God. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. And in a similar way, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Satan was cast out of heaven. He fell to the earth. And his presence here has a continuing effect in this world. And the fall of Satan described in chapter 9 and verse 1 here, is not the original rebellion. Though he and these angels had been banished from heaven, they, they were cast out, Satan still had access to heaven. Because we know that he came before God and that he still, he accuses the brethren, he accuses believers, He's the he makes accusation against us. But during the tribulation, he and his demons will unsuccessfully battle against Michael and the holy angels. And as a result of that defeat, they will lose their access even to heaven. We read about this a little later in Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. He says, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So with the theater of his operations now limited to the earth, Satan now wants to collect all of his resources, all of the, the demons that are upon the earth, all those that were thrown down with him from the heavens, and all those that are in the pit below. He's marshalling his, his resources for a final battle with God. And those, those that are already in the, in the pit... It refers to, it says, the bottomless pit. You see that word, the bottomless pit? Bottomless translates the Greek word abusos. It's the word from which we get our word abyss. And abyssos means depth. When you put an A in front of a, ne- a Greek word, it negates it. So what it means is there's no depth or it, it, the depth cannot be fathomed. It's, it's a bottomless pit. It's, it's infinitely deep. Try to try to imagine that this this pit that's that's bottomless, and this word abusos abyss bottomless pit appears seven times in the book of Revelation, and always it refers to the abode of incarcerated demons. It's a place where demons are incarcerated. Revelation twenty tells us that the devil himself that Satan himself will be bound there along with other demonic powers during the millennial reign. Scripture teaches us that God sovereignly chose to incarcerate certain demons in the pit of, of punishment, for example, Second Peter chapter two and verse four says, God did not spare angels when they sinned." but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, that phrase, cast them into hell, is a participle derived from the Greek word tartarus. Now, you may not have heard that word. People don't talk about it very much, tartarus. But just as Jesus used a term derived from the Jewish vernacular, to describe hell, he used Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, the place where the trash was burned, the place where children had been sacrificed and burned on the altar with fire. Uh, he used that as a picture of hell because that was an under something that the Jewish people could understand. When Peter, is ta- when Peter is talking to a broader Greek audience, a Roman audience, he uses the word Tartarus because Tartarus in Greek literature was the place where people who had offended the gods personally went after they died to be punished. And so this term Tartarus conveys the idea that because of their heinous sin, God has imprisoned certain demons in this pit and kept them there until the time of judgment. There are some demons that are so evil, so vile, that God will not even permit them to be upon the earth. And according to Revelation 20, again, they remain in that place until their, their final sentencing at the end, and they're thrown into the lake of fire. Now, the demons incarcerated in the abyss undoubtedly are the most wicked, vile, and perverted of all the fallen angels. Jude chapter 6 and verse 7 describes them as angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode noting that God has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, that could be a whole message right there. But what I want you to see is that this passage describes angels who left their their domain, the realm in which God has created them to exist. They left that domain and went into another domain. Just like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, men left the domain of relations with women and went into relations with other men and vice versa, women with women. So these angels left the realm of the angelic realm that he had created them and they began to try to have relations with people, with women. This is what he's describing. And this is perverted sexual immorality you remember what happened at sodom two angels came and the men of sodom wanted lot to bring those angels out for immoral purposes this is what he's describing here this is the kind of thing that's happening and in 1st peter chapter 3 in verse 18 it tells us that when this angelic sin occurred, he says this, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, that's he was physically crucified, but made alive in the spirit, not his spirit didn't die but in which he went and made proclamation now to the spirits now in prison. Proclamation is the word caruso. It's a proclamation of victory. It's not a proclamation of the, the evangelical. It's not a an evangelistic message. It's a message of victory. And he says these go ahead goes on, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So the spirits now in prison in the abyss are those who were once disobedient in the days of Noah. They are the demons who cohabitated with women in Satan's failed attempt to corrupt the human race and make it unredeemable. And they are horrible, vile beings. We know demons still fear going to this place because many of them pled with Jesus not to send them there. And this suggests that since this time, there may have been other demons that, that God has placed in the pit. The demons released by Satan at the fifth trumpet are these demons in the pit. These vile demons that have been put there over the ages. And it may include those uh, of the Noah's day, but, I mean, because it says that they are kept into, a burnt, into eternal bonds, it may be that they're released just before this all of this judgment takes place and they're thrown into the lake of fire. Or it may be just that other demons are released. released. I can't tell for sure. But other demons imprisoned in the abyss will be certainly released. So the pit is the preliminary place of incarceration for demons until the time of the judgment. You see, the bottomless pit is a spiritual dungeon for devils. It's, a, it's the demon death row. It's the, it's the penitentiary of powers and principalities. Demons are in prison even now. And Satan receives the key to the abyss, which he receives from the Lord Jesus Christ, who we have learned has the keys of death and Hades. And he opened the bottomless pit and he released its inmates. John Phillips comments, Picture what the world would be like if we were to open the doors of all the penitentiaries of earth and set free the world's most vicious and violent criminals, giving them full reign to practice their infamies upon mankind. Something worse than that lies in store for the world. Satan, cast out of heaven, is now permitted to summon to his aid the most diabolical fiends in the abyss to act as his agents in bringing mankind to the footstool of the beast. End quote. And when the, be- when the uh, abyss was opened, smoke, it says, went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. A smoke in Revelation can refer to something holy, but most of the time it refers to judgment. And, and such a vast volume of smoke issued from the abyss that the sun, it says, and the air were darkened by it. The smoke polluting the sky symbolizes the corruption of hell being belched out upon the earth to pollute the world. You see, there will be hell on earth when the bottomless pit is unlocked. But then there will be hell on earth when the demonic powers are unleashed. These powers are not unlocked, but they are unleashed. It says in verse 3, Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And though, and in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. And they will long to die, and death flees from them, so out of this vast ominous cloud of smoke that darkened the sky and caused terror upon the earth's inhabitants, John sees a new horror emerge: vile demons taking on the resemblance of locusts swarmed out of the abyss to plague the earth. I understand that these that these are not literal locusts. As we read on, this becomes very apparent. But they are, they are demons that have many of the characteristics of locusts, such as being innumerable, being terrifying, and devastating. The destructive power of locusts is really, it's hard to imagine if you've never been in a place where locusts have struck but locust swarms consume all vegetation in their path. The scene is reminiscent of the locust plagues in, in Egypt, and and that described in the book of Joel, but far worse. The, the imagery of, of smoke is, a, is an apt picture of locust plagues as they swarm, as they, they fill the air, and they darken the sun and the sky. It's, it's a, a horrifying picture. Of this. It's because you see, there are millions, millions upon millions of grasshopper like insects that are so thick that you literally cannot see through them. If you've ever seen pictures of these locusts, there were some in the news not long ago in, in India, and every tree was covered. You could not see any part of the trees, only the locusts. How thick they are. Uh, locust swarms can be unimaginably huge. One swarm over the Red Sea in 1889 was reported to have covered 2,000 square miles. The destruction that they cause can be staggering. John Phillips writes The worst locust plague in modern times struck the Middle East in 1951 and 52. When Iran, Iraq, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia, every green and growing thing was devoured across hundreds of thousands of square miles. Locusts eat grain, leaf, and stalk right down to the bare ground. And when a swarm arises and flies on its way, the green field is left a desert. Barrenness and desolation stretches as far as I can see. My friends, you see, these were not ordinary. Locusts, but demons, who like locusts, bring swarming destruction. The, the fact that three times in this passage, the power to inflict pain is compared to that of scorpions, it gives us another indication, see, that th- these are not literal locusts because locusts don't have tails to sting. Scorpions do. Scorpion is a, a scorpion is a species of arachnid that lives in dry, hot areas, and it has a it has a, a tail that comes over over its its over its back and it's tipped with a with poison, and and there are many species of of scorpions, at least a couple of dozen of them are capable of killing humans when when they sting. And the, their sting is is notoriously uh, painful. Uh, the symptoms of the sting from from deadly species include convulsions and paralysis, and resemble in many ways what we see in the Bible when people are demon possessed, convulsing, foaming at the mouth, and then paralyzed. And and when you combine these descriptions of you know, locusts and and scorpions, what we see is just the deadliness of this invasion. But the devastating pain inflicted by these demons will be far worse than that which is inflicted by an actual scorpion. This judgment is a judgment that God brings people into direct contact in a real and a physical way with demons. You know, friends, there are demons right here, right now, right in this room, and all around. They're everywhere, but they're invisible to us. And this time, there's going to be a manifestation, visible manifestation of these demons. And and people are going to get a sense of hell on earth. The, the, again, the, the fact that the locusts and scorpion creatures are, are come from the pit and that they have the, as their leader, it says, the angel of the abyss in verse 11, indicate that these are demons. Now, a lot of people read this and they want to make this uh, literal locusts, scorpions, or they want to make it uh, armies. Because they read things like, you know, the, the, the sound of their wings sounded like many horses rushing to battle. And they say, well, that sounds like a cobra helicopter. And then they've got these things that come out of their tail. And that's like, you know, the, the machine guns and so forth. But listen, we're not talking physical realm here. We're talking the spiritual realm here. This is far worse than anything that a war can ever pull off. As horrible as that can be. And and notice this, that strict limitations are placed on the activities of this demon host. See, this, this judgment, unlike the first four trumpet judgments, is not on the physical world. Because he says, in fact, they're told, do not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree. You see, they're not actual insects, because insects eat grass and trees and vegetation, the demon's business is not with vegetation, but with men. Not all people, but only those who have do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. He's talking about believers. People who have the Holy Spirit living in those. Those who are visibly identified, unashamedly recognizing Christ as their Savior. And believers will be preserved from this torment, just like the people of Egypt were preserved from the plagues that came in Egypt. And those who have the seal of God include not only the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, but also the rest of the redeemed who are proclaiming the gospel. The seal marks them as personally belonging to God as protected from all of these forces. Now, even what the demons can do to the unredeemed is limited. Although Satan has the power of death, that power is subject to God. He can only do what God permits him to do. And God says you can't kill anyone. They're not permitted to kill anyone. Now You can imagine after a millennia of being bound up in this pit that these these demons are just ready to unleash all of their all of their wrath upon the world. They love to kill people. Satan loves to kill people. He would kill people if he could because he wants to claim them for himself in the realm of hell. But God says, you you can't kill them because this is an opportunity that God has given in his mercy for people to hear the truth once again. And certainly... He's going to give them five months. Now, this sounds, this sounds strange, but God gives them five months of torment rather than death. He gives them five months of torment rather than death. It's better to have five months of torment than eternal torment. And God's grace does this for these people. Torment is described as punishment in Revelation. And that five-month period will be one of the most intense, physical, and spiritual times that the world has ever seen. That fearful judgment is likened to the torment inflicted by a scorpion when it stings a man. Unbelievers are going to be hearing the message of God. Unbelievers are going to be hearing the gospel proclaimed during all this time. And for five months, people are going to have the opportunity in in terms of torment and terms of terror to be be able to turn to God. This is going to be the motivation, the impetus. Did you know that most people, most people in their lives, turn to God because of adversity, because of difficulty, because they recognize that what they are doing is not working. So intense will be the torment inflicted upon unbelievers. It says, in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. All hope is gone. There is no tomorrow. The earth that people have loved and worshipped will have been utterly devastated. The land will be and have been uh, uh, ravaged by earthquakes and fires and volcanoes. The sea is going to be filled with, with uh, putrefying bodies of billions of dead creatures. Much of the, the water supply is going to be turned to bitterness. The atmosphere is going to be polluted from gases. And now there are going to be this horde of demons upon the earth tormenting people everything there's no there is no out there is no place to turn except to God that's the point he took he took the death of the firstborn of all the people of Egypt for he Israel to be released let me ask you friend what does it take for you? To repent. What has to happen in your life for you to be willing to repent and turn to God? See, with all this, the dream that has been floated out there of a utopia promised by the Antichrist is going to be gone. Nobody's going to believe that lie anymore. And the only place to turn. Is to God there will be hell on earth when the bottomless pit is unlocked and the powers of hell are unleashed and there will be torment on or, or hell on earth when their tormenting purpose is unveiled look at verse 7 the appearance of the locust was like horses prepared for battle And on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing. And they have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months." These demons are terrifying in their appearance, in their nature, and in their actions. And and they are described as locusts because they bring massive, devastating, rapid judgment from God. But their exaggerated, terrifying features reveal them to be unlike anything that the world has ever seen. John can only give us really an approximation. He's using similes and and metonyms, and he's using all these figures of speech. Uh, uh, He's trying to explain it to us. But there's nothing that ever happened like it. In fact, John uses the word like ten times in this passage. It's like this. It's like that. And they appeared to be like this. And to describe the supernatural demon horde, John just... Picks up whatever natural uh, analogies that he can find. The general appearance of locusts, he says, was, was was like horses prepared for battle. In other words, they were warlike, they were powerful, they were defiant. Uh, they, they were like horses straining at the bit, pawing at the ground, ready to rush into battle. Oftentimes, the horses are are clad with armor themselves. If you look at Ever look at locusts and their exoskeleton is 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 in pieces. It looks very much like armor. In fact, I think whoever invented armor looked at insects to to come up with the idea. And on their heads was he says was what appeared to be crowns like gold crowns they wore were Stephanoi. That means that they the victor's crown. That's the idea that these this demon host will be invisible, unstoppable. Unconquerable men will have no weapons against them, no uh, anything anything effective against the torment that they bring. That their faces were like the faces of men indicates that they are intelligent, rational beings, not insects. Jeremiah fifty-one twenty-seven describes locusts as having bristle-like hair. The description here is that they have hair like women, and. The hair of women is one of their most beautiful features. It's one that is adorned. and It's one that is a picture of seductiveness. Even though these demons are uh, terrifying, horrible in appearance, they are also, just like the nature of Satan, they are deceptive and they are alluring and they're going to lure people to follow them even in the midst of all this craziness. Like sirens of Greek mythology, they lure people to their doom. They have teeth like the teeth of lions, meaning that they're fierce and powerful and deadly. Nothing can stand against them. They have breastplates of iron. You know, know, when you wear armor, it's designed to protect your vital organs. And it just symbolizes that they they have an invulnerability. They are impossible to resist or to destroy. In a further metaphor drawn from the battlefield, John uses. He says they're like the sound of the, the sound of their wings is like a, the moving of an army, the sound of chariots and many horses rushing to battle. In other words, there, there's no there's no way to escape them. They're everywhere. This is terrifying. Again, you will you will read that this is a picture of modern day warfare spoken in ancient times. But friends, this is a picture of something far worse. This is a picture of demons. Because listen, their purpose, their purpose is to hurt men for five months. Their purpose is to torment. Now the nature of this torment is not given I mean, other than like a sting, a physical sting of a scorpion, how it hurts, we're not told how it happens. But if you look at examples in the Bible of people who've been demon-possessed, one of the things you see is that, again, they, are, they try to hurt themselves. They, they fall into water. They fall into fire. They cut themselves. They have strength. They go insane. They foam at the mouth. They are in isolation. They are, they are they're terrified. There are all kinds of things that describe people who are under the influence of demons. And for five months, these demons are going to torment physically and spiritually the unbelieving of the world. Now, eventually... This is, this is only temporary. It's five months. Eventually, they're going to be thrown back into their pit, and then they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire with the devil, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There will be hell on earth. When the bottomless pit is unlocked, when the demon hordes are unleashed, and when their tormenting purpose is unveiled, and finally, there will be hell on earth when the destroying prince is unmasked. It says in verse 11, they have a, as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Ab- 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 Abaddon, and in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Now, unlike real locusts, these demons have a king over them, a prince. <clears throat> Some people have identified this angel as Satan, As we look at Scripture, his realm of domain is the heavenlies. Uh, He's the prince of the power of the air. He's not associated with the abyss until he is locked there at the end. This angel is better viewed as a high-ranking demon in Satan's hierarchy. John notes that his name is Abaddon, and, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Both names simply mean Destroyer, And that's an appropriate name for what these demons do. They are there to hurt and to destroy. And Abaddon is used in the Old Testament to describe the place of eternal punishment. Further, reinforcing the angel's connection with the abyss and hell. Polyon means... I destroy. I destroy. That's always Satan's goal, is to destroy. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to turn you away from God. That's always been his goal. And verse 12 says this, The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. Do you get this picture? Do you, does this, studying this book is is just, it it has been fascinating to me. But I, I had no idea how many times there's a pause for God to say, are you ready? After all these things come, he, he comes again and says, are you ready? If you're not, there's worse still to come. I mean, are you ready? Are you ready to meet God? or Do you know Christ? Have you repented of your sin and turned to him by faith? That's something that you ought to ask yourself. I mean, you ought to examine your own heart and you ought to ask and be absolutely certain that you have come to that place in your life where you have said, Jesus, I put my faith in you and you alone. I'm willing to turn from my sin and follow you. That's called repentance. And I want to be obedient to you in my life. I am unashamed of you. I'm not ashamed to have the mark Of Christ on my life. Because, friend, that seal is the thing that makes all the difference in the world. And think about this if Jesus were to come today, all of us who are believers, we would be taken up out of this world and we would be in heaven with the Lord when all of this stuff begins to happen. If you're not ready today, when we're gone, you're left here and you will live through all of this, maybe. And God is even now, even now before you ever get there, he is showing you very clearly what you have to look forward to. And he would say today, are you ready? Whoa. If you're not. Whoa. Whoa. If you're not, let's bow our heads and quiet our hearts before God. Are you able right now to legitimately enter into the presence of God? Right now, do you, are you, do you know that God is there, that you are communing with him? You know, if you don't have that relationship with Him, maybe today you would be willing to say to Him, "God, I w- I want to have that relationship. I believe that you that you love me so much that you you took upon yourself all the or all the judgment of hell. You endured it in my." In my my behalf, I I I believe that, and I believe that you're greater than hell. I believe you're greater than death. I believe you rose from the dead. And I want to ask you to cleanse me of my sin and grant me the grace to be able to turn from going my own way. I want to be your servant. And I don't want to be ashamed of you. I want to boldly name you. I want your seal to be upon my life, even for the world to see. And friend, if you will call upon him right now, if you will ask him, he will come literally into your life and dwell in your heart. He will change your heart. He will give you eternal life. He will put his seal upon you. And no doubt, many of us who are believers are thinking about people that we know that are not believers. Many of whom could very legitimately have to endure many of the things that we have looked at in our study of Revelation. Let's pray, let's pray to God today to give us a, a renewed heart for the lost around us, for our loved ones. For renewed energy and in, in speaking to them, for a new boldness, for a new love. Let's ask God to grant us souls for his kingdom now. Father, we give you the glory. Thank you again for your revelation of the future and of what our lives can be. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. And that concludes our message for today, and you are dismissed. We will dismiss from the back to the front.